The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. Psalm 4 is what we'll be looking at. The title of the message, if I had to title it, it would be called Sleep Like a Baby, Resting in the Lord While Opposition and Trials Abound. And as you're turning to Psalm 4, I just want to ask you, how well do you sleep at night? I'm not talking about just maybe, you know, getting up to go to the bathroom a couple times or you're too hot at night. I remember when I was a few years ago, probably 13, 14 years ago, I'd wake up in the middle of the night for a couple months and I would just be sweating. And I didn't know why. I thought there was something wrong. Maybe I was eating too much sugar or something. I just couldn't figure it out. And this went on week after week. And Kim was like, maybe you need to go to the doctor. I was like, I couldn't figure it out. Well, come to find out, my wife gets really cold at night, so she has an electric blanket. And it's got two sides. And I would check mine, and I was like, it's turned all the way down. And she kept turning hers up every night. Well, come to find out, the electric blanket was flipped. (laughs) So I'm waking up, just, ah. That's not what I'm talking about, though. (laughs) I'm talking about when you can't sleep because you're just full of anxiety. Or you're just, you're so stressed out, you just can't, you can't focus. You can't think straight. If that's the case, there's, there's one of two things going on. Either as a Christian, you've taken your eyes off of the Lord. You've taken your eyes off of him and forgot his sovereignty. Or you've never put your eyes on him in the first place. And you're not a Christian. We as Christians should have a peace that surpasses understanding at all times. We see this all throughout scripture. We see, if we look at Jesus, our Lord, we see in Mark, he's out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and there's a huge storm. I mean, it's, the, the text in the Greek says mega gale. It's a huge storm. And these men were frantic. They're running around and they're, they're desperate. And that's a, a big deal because these men were fishermen. They knew what a bad storm was and they, were, they thought they were gonna die. And where do we see Jesus? We see Jesus asleep in the boat. He, he could rest because he knew God was sovereign. He knew he didn't have to worry about anything. Now, some might say, well, that's, that's Jesus. He's God. And I would say, well, if you say that, that's just an excuse because you have the Holy Spirit living within you if you're a believer. You can have that same peace, that same rest. And we could even look all throughout Scripture and look all throughout church history and see individuals who rested the same way. We could look to Hugh Latimer or Nicholas Ridley, these men who were executed in the 1500s. And there's an account of the night before Nicholas Ridley was executed, his brother came to the jail and he was going to stay with him that night and says, I want to stay here to comfort you and just, you know, be here for you. And Ridley said, I don't need you here. I'm going to sleep like a baby. And he did. He slept all night, no problems. He woke him up in the morning and he was executed. But he had a, a, an understanding of the sovereignty of God. We could go a hundred years farther into the future and we see this man named Archibald Campbell. He was accused of conspiring with Oliver Cromwell and for sedition against King Charles I. And they put him in prison and they were going to execute him the next morning by removing his head from his body. And the next morning, the morning came and one of the guards came 
and they had to actually wake him up. He was sleeping so sound because he had a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. He faced execution with peace. He trusted completely in the Lord. These men, they had a peace that would not be shaken because they had a God who could be trusted. That's amazing. These men could sleep like babies no matter what the situation. And as we look at this psalm, we see David, he's the one who wrote this psalm, and in this situation, he's running from his son, Absalom, who wants to, wants to kill him, essentially, and overtake, overthrow the kingdom, he wants to become king. This was his beloved son. And David writes this psalm during this time. So let's read Psalm 4, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll look at it verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles open, Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Okay, now as we work through this this psalm, we see, I want us to look at four aspects of this psalm that David articulates to help us rest in the Lord during difficult situations. First, the first aspect we see here is David has this blessed desperation. He has this blessed desperation. Look at verse one. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So as we begin, as we dig in right off the bat, we see David in a state of this desperation. He's desperate. This this prayer is a weary, desperate plea to God. You can almost see David slumped over in some cave somewhere with his elbows on his knees, his his head in his hands just weeping. He's desperate. He's a long way from the city of David. He's a long way from the, the comforts of the palace. His son and, and many of his friends have totally betrayed him. Some of his closest friends have turned their backs on him, and he's desperate here. His list of enemies seems to be just getting longer and longer and longer. This is definitely not what David envisioned back when he was anointed king by Samuel. This wasn't what he envisioned. Or when he had that great victory over Goliath. This wasn't what he envisioned. So have you ever been there? Have you ever been like that? Just broken down and ready to just throw in the towel. Your your circumstances just seem to keep getting worse and worse. Maybe it's a friend or family member who's betrayed you or or you're just, they've turned their back on you. Could be that you've dealt with so much loss in your life. It just seems like too much. It could be loss of relationships through somebody betraying you or even death in your family. It seems to just 
come one after another, and you just seems like more loss, more loss, more loss, and you're just broken. These things just keep coming at you. You're, you're a shell. You look back and you say, I'm a shell of who I used to be. I'm just broken. You find yourself hurting and sometimes you want to just scream, God, please help me. Please, just help me. That's where David is. We see this desperation in the first sentence. He cries out in desperation for the Lord to answer him. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That's how it begins, this psalm. And it kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. The interesting thing to see here is in that very, those very first words, answer me when I call. That's an imperative. That's a command. This isn't to say that David's giving God a command as if David was an authority and God was submissive to, to David. No. It's more like if your son or daughter were in a pond or a lake and they were drowning and they cried out to you, save me! It's that kind of, a, of an imperative. So we see this desperation, but we also see in that first verse the phrase, O God of my righteousness. So David understands God is the source of any righteousness in him. All the glory must be given to God. He understands that he deserves nothing. He understands that. He doesn't deserve to be reinstated as king because of his good character, because he's done something good. He doesn't deserve to live another day because he's so righteous or moral. He understands that. He's not righteous or good on his own. Any righteousness that he has is only from God. David understands that. And any request that he brings to God, he wants that request answered on the basis of God's righteousness. Not his. Oh God of my righteousness. I want my prayers answered on the basis of who you are and your character. Not on who I am. He understands that. He calls out to God for deliverance. He's not, also, he's, he's not doing this blindly. He's not just doing this blindly. In other words, he's not crying out to God without some prior experiential knowledge of God. The text goes on. It says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And then he says this, you have relieved me in my distress. David's reminding himself of God's past deliverance. Any relief that he has ever received from distress came completely and utterly from God. He's reminding himself of that. He reminds us of that. David has had several experiences in the past where God had delivered him out of the hands of his enemy. Examples would be King Saul. King Saul literally wanted to pin David to the wall. He, he hated David. He wanted to kill him. Before that, we see this battle with Goliath. David was trusting in God. He knew God would deliver him. He, he remembers those things. God is, had always been faithful to David, and he knew it. So yes, he, he was in a desperate state here. This was desperation. But this was tempered by his experiential knowledge of God's past faithfulness. I want you to understand that this is not a, a desperation without hope. This isn't a desperation without hope. No, it's, it's not like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel who cried out in desperation with no hope. This desperation, there was hope. It was a blessed desperation. Let's go there. Turn to 1 Kings. Let's look at that desperate 
call by the prophets of Baal who had no hope. 1 Kings 18. I want to read this, this account from verse 20 to verse 29. 1 Kings 18, verse 20 to 29. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put, on, put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare the, it first, for you, you, are my, you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep, and he needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering, of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. So these prophets were desperate. They were desperate, just like David. And the longer this charade went on, the more desperate they became because they knew if Baal didn't answer them, they were in trouble. So they're desperate here. The text says they raved, they, they babbled, they ranted. They danced around and cut themselves for hours, yet nothing happened. The same verb is used here, ah, nah, that's the Hebrew word, it's the same word that David used. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there's a huge difference in what they're saying and what David said. They're crying out to Baal, as I said, with no prior assurance that he had any power whatsoever to answer them. There's no experiential knowledge that they had that Baal had ever answered anything. Because he didn't. He was a figment of the imagination of sinful men who wanted to indulge in their lustful desires. They invented Baal. He had no power to answer anything. This was a desperate call with no hope. David calls out to God with confidence. He remembers God's character. He has an experiential knowledge of both God's righteousness and his past faithfulness. And then at this, at this point in our text, we see David's tone begin to change a little bit. Look at the text. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He pleads for God to be gracious to him. The tone of the request turns from a blessed, desperate cry for God to answer to this, this humble request for God to graciously hear his prayer. His tone's changing a little bit there. The reminders of God's past faithfulness and the reminder 
that God is the source of his righteousness. Help David to kind of calm down a little bit here. Just calm down, David. Remember God. Remember who God is. That helped him to calm down. And it'll help us as well when we're facing anxiety, when we're, we're stressed out, we've got all these things coming at us. Remember who God is. Remember his sovereignty. Remember this experiential knowledge you, had, you have that God has answered prayers in the past, in Scripture, in your life, in everybody, any, every other Christian's life. Remember those things, and it will help you calm down. So we see in the, the first half of this text, the first half of this, past, this psalm, David's blessed desperation. And the next thing David points out here, the next aspect that's brought out to help him think rightly and rest in the Lord is this warning to the wicked. Look at verses two through three. He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. So in this warning, we see these, there's two rebukes that David gives here. And the first one is essentially he's saying in verse 2, stop trying to destroy the godly. And he does that with a rhetorical question. He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? These men that were persecuting David, that wanted his life, they would do anything to destroy him and his kingdom. And David's rebuking them for continually trying to derail or somehow stop the blessing that he has received from the Lord because of his obedience. They want to stop it. They can't stand it because he's dedicated to godly living and just gets to them. He wants to live holy, and they want to derail this. They want to stop any blessing that comes from this. They want to put David to open shame before all the people, humiliate him. And with this rhetorical question of how long, David is essentially saying, stop shaming those who strive for holiness. There's people like that today in your life. Those who will do all that they can to try to put the Christian to shame They would love nothing more than to see the Christian fall, stumble. They want to see the believer put to shame. And in your life, this could come in many avenues. It could be an unbelieving family member or a co-worker who's constantly deriding you or insulting you because of your belief in Christ. They're just always on you. They want to destroy your reputation. They love to hear when Christians fall, and they'll talk about it. Do you see that? The guy, he was so, I thought he was so holy, thought he was better than us, and look at what he did. They love to deride people that are Christians. They'll talk behind your back, they'll spread lies about you all day long. Friends, there are few things more frustrating than someone spreading these slanderous lies about you that have no ground. Someone who just wants to bring you down because they're jealous of the way God has blessed you. They're just jealous. You continue to receive the blessings of God, and they just hate it. They want you to fail. They long for you to crash and burn. And we see this all throughout Scripture. I'm not just saying this from personal experience. I'm saying we see this all throughout Scripture. We go way back to Genesis. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Genesis 4, starting with verse 2. Here's an instance of this. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Why did he become angry? Why did he kill him? Because he was jealous that God accepted Abel's offering and not his. And we could go on. We could go on looking all throughout Scripture. Genesis 37, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. They hated him because he had his father's favor. Eventually, they sell him into slavery. They fabricate this story about his death. Later on, we see Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife hates the fact that Joseph is a man of integrity. He won't commit adultery with this woman. She hates it. She lies about him to her husband in order to get him thrown into prison. And he's thrown into prison. All because he just wants to live a godly life. He wants to be holy. The honor or favor of God that's upon Joseph is a reproach to his brothers and to Potiphar's wife. It's a reproach to them. We could look at, the, we could move on in the, in the Old Testament and look in the book of Numbers. We see this reproach being cast upon Moses by Korah in the book of Numbers. Verse 16 says, Now Korah and the sons of Izhar the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Moses had God's favor. And Korah and his band of essentially insurrectionists hated him for it. Why is God favoring you? What about us? See, this is, it's not new to David. We could go on. We could go and talk about Daniel. He was hated by the commissioners and the satraps in Daniel 6. They hated him because he wanted to live holy. We could look at Mordecai, who was hated by Haman in the book of Esther, and we could go on and on and on. All of these are examples of someone slandering and trying to bring reproach on an individual because they're blessed by God. This is what David was facing, and he was rebuking the ones who were doing this with this rhetorical question. How long are you going to keep this up? How long will you insult and mock the child of God. Stop it. Stop doing this. And then he adds, stop loving what is worthless. Stop loving what is worthless. He says, oh, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? 
That's just a, a rebuke of their love for the things that have no substance. They want these things. They want power. They want riches. Stop going after those worthless things. They have no substance. But that's what these individuals are doing. The Hebrew word translated as worthless is, the word is reek. And it just means empty, vain. There's just nothing there. David's enemies loved to spread slander about him. It's just, they, they spoke many empty words about him. The more slander they could come up with, the more they loved it. They wanted to deceive the people, as the text says. They, they were aiming at deception. They wanted to do everything they could to bring David down. They, they had no fear of God. They, had not, they, they didn't worship the true God of Israel, but they pandered to these false gods. Because they had no fear of God, they could lie all day long about David to try to bolster themselves and didn't bother them. Because they didn't fear God. Stop doing that. It's, it's a stern warning from David here. From God, through David. And then he gives them this sober reminder to, to make them think more about this. He's, he reminds them who they're persecuting. In verse 3, he says, But know, know this, that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So just as Abel, just as Daniel, just as Moses, just as Joseph, all believers have God's favor upon them. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. This is a warning to the wicked that when they deride, when they mock, when they ridicule or physically harm the Lord's children, by extension, they're doing the same thing to the Lord. It's a warning. They better be careful how they treat the children of God. The Lord has chosen them and set them apart as holy. He knows when they're in distress and feels compassion for them as a father feels compassion for a child. If you're a parent here, you know that compassion. Psalm 145, 18 and 19 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Those who persecute his children will not go unpunished. They need to understand that. Yes, it may seem like they get away with it for a while, even, you know, their whole life. But don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. I think we heard a sermon on that not too long ago. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And some will hear that and they'll say, yeah, I know. I know that's true. I know the Bible says that. But it seems like so many evil men throughout history have gone unpunished. Some have even flourished. Some are flourishing now. They've had great comfort in this life. They've had everything they want. Many have gone to the grave just living a wonderful, wonderful life on this earth never suffering any punishment at all. But you see, that's the key. The, the punishment doesn't always come in this life. And this life is short. Even if you live to be 110 years old even, it's short compared when you think of eternity. This is very, very short. So they're just building up 
and building up and building up punishment upon themselves and rejecting God. It may come after they die. But either way, we can be sure punishment will be handed down. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Now, obviously, our desire for even our enemies should be for them to come to the Lord. We don't want them to burn in hell. Obviously, we want them to come to the Lord. We should desire them to come to repentance in the Lord. We should plead with them, beg them to turn in repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the the point here is that if you're a Christian, you belong to God. Take great comfort in that. And if you're not, just be warned that the wicked will not go unpunished. And if you're not a Christian, you're wicked. You will be punished. Now, David continues in the vein of encouragement here for the believer by reminding them that the Lord hears the prayers of his children. He wants to encourage those who are trusting in God that God does hear your prayers. So that change from that blessed desperation where he's crying out to now being reminded again, he does hear your prayers. The text says that the Lord hears when I call to him. So here again, he's expressing his complete trust in God no matter what they do or say to him. He'll rest securely in the arms of God because he knows God is sovereign. And he knows that the sovereign God hears him when he cries out to him. So he'll rest in that. So just ask yourself, can you say the same? Really? Can you really say the same? Do you have that complete trust in the sovereignty of God so much so that you don't get all stressed out about perhaps a diagnosis by the doctor because you know God is sovereign? Do you trust that God is completely sovereign in all things, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening to you or what's happening to this person? God is sovereign. Can you say that, as David did, that you know the Lord hears you when you call and that he has not lost control of anything? He hasn't lost control of anything. You could say, well, I should have done this or I should have done that or maybe I should do this or that. That's fine, but God is still sovereign. He's still in control of all those things. Take comfort in that. Are you completely confident that nothing happening to you right now has caught God by surprise? Nothing happening to you. No matter how horrible it may seem to you, it has not caught God by surprise. He's sovereign. Or do you say God is sovereign? You say you believe God is sovereign, but your faith goes out the window when the storms of life come or when something a little different than what you're used to happens you, you just, your faith goes out the window and you're, you're anxious, you're, you're just stressed out all the time. Maybe at one time you could say, you know, I, I, I would say that. I would say God is sovereign I would, and I would trust in that, but you've, you've grown weary. You're just, you're tired. You're, you're done with life. You don't, you didn't sign up for this and things just seem to be, keep getting worse. Your family or friends are just relentless. Maybe they're all unbelievers and they're relentless. Maybe you've an unbelieving spouse who constantly mocks your faith, and you're just weary. You're just weary. Remember, God is sovereign. Remember that he has set the believer apart for himself. He sets you apart for himself. Remember that he hears you when you pray. Even though it seems like at times he doesn't, he does. 
It seems like at times when you're just crying out, Lord, please, why aren't you answering me here? What's going on? He, he hears you. Now, to close out this section, David calls the wicked to repentance. So we've got David's request for repentance here in verses four and five. The text says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. So this call is clear and concise. He brings out every area of the human constitution that's involved in repentance. He points it out right here. First of all, he touches on the emotional aspect of repentance. He says, tremble and do not sin. Another way to say this, which we see in the New Testament, be angry and do not sin. And the word that's used here for tremble in the Hebrew, it means to be agitated, to be excited or disturbed, to be shaken or excited with anger. He's calling for them to be disturbed by their sins, so much so that they're angry about it. They're angry about it. He's calling for a hatred of their sinful behavior. Take it seriously. Don't make light of your sin. That's what he's saying here. Don't, don't, don't take it lightly. He's calling for them to be disturbed by their sin. Be miserable in your sin. Don't become comfortable in it. Be sure that your affections are far away from your sin. In other words, your affections should be far away from your sin. This is an appeal by David for the wicked to align their emotions with the Lord's and to hate what he hates. Tremble and do not sin. Hate what he hates. James 4, 7 through 10 says this. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, when you read that, you think, wow, he's telling me to be miserable and, and mourn. He's talking about your sin. Be miserable in your sin. Don't, be, don't take it lightly. And draw near to him. Be disturbed by your sin. That's the first part of repentance. Having a hatred for your sin. So are you today disturbed by your sin? Are you angry at your sin, desiring to live holy? If not, if you're, if you're here today and you have no concept of really what sin is, it doesn't bother you at all, you're, you're not a believer and you need to repent. You need to turn from that and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, your sin should bother you. You should go to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So go to him. Now, the next aspect of repentance that David brings out here is the intellectual aspect. You've got that emotional aspect. Then we see the intellectual aspect. He says, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Now, you hear that word heart, and you think of our Western culture, and you think, well, isn't that the emotions, what he just talked about? No. The word that's used here in the Hebrew, it carries the idea of the inner man. The same type of word is used in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek. It's, more, it's not that emotional seat. It's, it's talking about the inner man, the mind, or the will. You can be sure that he, this is referring to the intellect here, not the, the emotions. He's, he's referring to the intellect. This is calling to think deeply on these things. As the wicked lay in their beds at night, the Lord's calling them 
to think about their sin. Let it sink in. Consider how they've treated the righteous. Consider and turn from the sin and turn to God. Think about it. Meditate on it. You know, meditation is a good word. It was hijacked by, you know, Eastern religions, but it's a good word. Just meditate on the things of God. Think about, think deeply about the things of God. Chew on them. Spend time in them. Are you doing that? Are you meditating on the, on the things of God? We need to understand the holiness of God. We need to be exposing ourselves to the truth of God, allowing it to influence us, to have an effect on us. The word of God is, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it, it can direct, we need to direct our thoughts and our actions through the word of God. Now, the third aspect of repentance that God points out in this passage is the action that proceeds from this, this transformed heart, from the, the anger that comes with the emotion and the intellect, and there's this action. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. So this is a call to turn away from the hypocritical religiosity that these wicked men in this context that were trying to persecute David, he's saying, turn away from this hypocritical religious activity that you're involved in. Those who were persecuting David and to overthrow the kingdom, they were persecuting David out of one side of their mouth and then going to the temple and sacrificing on the other side. That's hypocrisy. It brings to mind the account in John 18. We see these Pharisees bringing Jesus to Pilate to have him executed. They're bringing him to Pilate. They want him tried and they want him executed. Yet they would not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled. Listen to the text, John 18, 28. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Really? You're about to crucify the Son of God, yet you don't want to be defiled. It's ridiculous. It's hypocrisy of the worst kind. There must be a true repentance, a turning away from this, and that only comes through the transforming power of God. Now, the last aspect David points out here of repentance is the spiritual aspect. He, he, he says, trust in the Lord. And we all know that if one is to be right with God, they must not only turn from their sins, but they must place their trust fully in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Repentance and belief are so closely connected that you can hardly, you can scarcely separate them because they're all happening at the same time. You know, like Chris told us in his um, sermon, the, the logically, it's one after the other, but in reality, they happen so quickly, so, they're happening so fast that you can't really separate them. But logically, they happen one after the other. Repentance, trusting in God, you know, these things happen logically, but in reality, they happen all at once. But you must repent and trust in Christ. This is a call to repentance for these wicked men. They're being called to fear God and tremble in their sins, to think deeply on these things, consider their sin and, and take it seriously. Then turn away from their foolish, hypocritical sacrifices and put their trust fully and completely in God. That's what he's calling them to do. And that's all part of the warning that's being issued here in verses two and three. They need to repent fully and put their trust in God. Now finally, we come to this last portion of the text here in verses six through eight, and we see that David closes this psalm out 
with praises to remember the reality of our situation as believers. He, we see David's relief is finally realized here. It's finally realized in verses six through eight. He says, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now here again we see the, the desperation of the, un, the downtrodden. Those who, like David, feel weary. They're just plain tired. They, they can't see a, any good in this life. They say, many are saying, who will show us any good? David answers this question with a call for God's blessings to be upon him and his men. He says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. This is a request that the fullness of God's divine favor be directed towards him and his men. He wants it directed upon them. He's trying to comfort them with these words. You, you've, you've heard these words before in, in a benediction. It's from Numbers 24, 6, 24 through 26. It said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now, that's what David's talking about here. And then immediately after this benediction, he expresses joy and gladness. The, the desperation that was present at the beginning of this psalm is gone. So God answered his prayer from the beginning. By the end, that prayer is answered. David has relief. What he was looking for. David's perspective has changed. As he thought on the things of the Lord, his prayer was answered. The Lord did relieve him in his distress. David rejoices, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. The Lord has put gladness in his heart even when those wicked men he just warned seemed to be flourishing. Even then, the Lord has just put gladness in his heart. When his enemies seemed to be enjoying the blessings that he once enjoyed, his joy is greater because it's true joy, a, true that, a joy that comes from the God of creation. It's a joy that surpasses understanding. It's a true joy. He can sleep soundly. David can sleep soundly now, just like Nicholas Ridley, just like our Lord in the boat. David can rest in peace because he knows God will keep him safe. It says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So is that where you're at today? Are you resting in the Lord? What's causing you anxiety and stress? What is it that you are always thinking about? You're just stressed out. Be encouraged by this psalm. Take great comfort in knowing that whatever you're going through, the Lord knows, and he's completely in control. Go to him. Cry out to him as David did. Lord, please answer me when I call to you. Please. In your desperation, cry out to him and remember his past faithfulness. Remember that you're his child and that he will never forsake you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Come to him and he will, you will find relief in him and you'll truly sleep like a baby no matter what comes your way. You'll be able to sleep because you're trusting in the sovereignty of God. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this psalm. We're thankful that we know that you are sovereign, that we can trust completely in you, uh, that we know that no matter what comes our way, you are in control. You haven't for one moment forgotten about us, forgotten about any situation that's taking place in our life. I pray that we would put the focus on you and we would desire to worship you more. We pray for the rest of this service. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.